1: I don't think anyone can deny that if I was in this pod cave a year ago and said that in Melbourne you couldn't go out more than 5 k's from your house, only one person could go shopping, I had to carry papers to go to work and I could only leave the house to go for exercise an hour a day and yeah. I was locked up for 23 yeah, no hours. No-one would have believed us. No-one would have believed me. No, so no. they are extraordinary to go to your point of it can't be normalisation by acquiescence. Yes. Um, it, there always should be a choice.
0: Well, hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and with me on the show this week is the lovely Scott Ryan.
1: Great to be back. It's been a few years. <laughs> it has. I realised I was here just after I was elected president. No,
0: well, Scott just said this to me uh, that that it had actually been three years since he had been in the pod cave, which is kind of extraordinary to me because that I don't know it, it doesn't yeah. seem that long. But, it
1: does seem like a cave, though, may well, you say it. Well, right?
0: it is a cave. Anyway, most people I'm sure listening will know who Scott is. Scott is a Victorian Liberal and he is the President of the Senate. And we are speaking this week about lots of fun issues, but the reason I've invited him in is that people watching Parliament will know that we've had, I mean, people bandy around historic weeks sort of rather liberally, but it's true, we have. We have had a bit of history this week in the parliament on a few fronts. We've had parliamentarians contributing to debates Mm. through remote technology. We've also had, well, not just this session, but several sessions now of COVID's sort of special sessions. Anyway, I just thought it would be instructive for people to bring Scott in and we can talk a little bit about how all of that came to pass, how, how how the parliament sort of put itself in the 21st century and also the pluses and minuses of that which I think is actually quite interesting. So let's just start with the COVID arrangements. How has that come about? Take us a little bit behind the scenes.
1: So when the pandemic was first sort of publicly spoken about back in February, March, just like every other workplace did before they were shut down in various places, um, we had to put in place safe work arrangements here, what are called COVID safe arrangements here. Parliament was limited. There was legislation that needed to be passed for things like the JobKeeper package and there was cooperation with the government and the Position to ensure quick passage of bills that allowed for also executive discretion and ministerial discretion in case Parliament couldn't sit. We had a single day, I think, in March and then a single day in April. Mm. They were also facilitated by the opposition and the government coming to large, what are called pairing arrangements. So I can't remember in the House, I think about 60 members of the House probably didn't turn up. In the Senate, it was slightly less. We had about Mm -hmm. 45 of the 76 senators. And we did things like put people on every second seat. We tried not to call divisions where people had to walk across and almost brush past each other in the chamber. We would allow parties to, if they wanted to dissent from a vote rather than call a division, just announce that they opposed this particular measure. Mm-hmm. So the record recorded it. We had to close the building to the public, close it to school tours, close it to all the events. Lobbyists. Lobbyists, pass holders, businesses, unions, charities. Mm -hmm. And essentially, as anyone knows, it's a big building. It gets very empty very quickly. And we had to close the cafes. So it was only takeaway coffee, back to your office, Mm -hmm. prepackaged food, back to your office. The difference was, of course, we had to travel from all around the country. So there was a, a unique risk of that. As it relaxed in the rest of the country. I can turn to Victoria later, but there was a unique challenge with Victoria come July. We did then have a normal parliamentary sitting fortnight in June. And that was as normal as we could have in the sense that I'd say there were about, my guess would be about 120 to 130 of the 150 members of the house Mm. and 70 of the 76 senators. We maintained all the COVID safe arrangements around spacing in the chamber. But as we did Because we are subject to ACT rules here, cafes were allowed to open with spacing, only a few tables, and we allowed people to sort of go back into a degree of normality, Mm. and then we rose for the traditional not sitting period of July. And then, of course, in early August, the Chief Medical Officer provided advice that because of what was happening in Melbourne, it wasn't safe to travel and to gather. Yep. We're particularly aware, the Speaker and I, that there aren't many places in the country where people come from all over the country at the moment. And even if you have rules like we do, which are don't bring your staff, only have the member or senator, that there's a unique a risk element there because yeah. of travel.
0: We are kind of like a stationary cruise ship. It's like people coming from all around the place, mingling yeah. in one building. It's a fairly unique, as you said, a mindigo set of circumstances. Just at the I hadn't moment. thought of that.
1: That's a good analogy. We we do have you know over a thousand people working here, and we do ensure as many of those can work from home when people are, are coming in from all around the country. Uh, And of course, since the difficult situation in Victoria, we didn't sit in the first part of August and we are now sitting normally this weekend, next week. Victorians went into a period of quarantine beforehand and we've put in place more arrangements here. We've closed the building again. We're now operating for the first time at what I would call above ACT standards Mm -hmm. on advice from the chief medical officer. So in In Canberra here, as you know, Catherine, you can go to a cafe, you you, you can have a meal. We've closed all those facilities to to minimise the risk. Not so much from Victoria at the moment, to be honest. The advice is where people are coming from other parts of the country where there may be the risk of community transmission. So Mm. we obviously act entirely on the advice of our medical authorities with the operation of the building, and we're conscious of the unique... well. I wouldn't call it a cruise ship, but I can see the analogy. Well, a, I, I,
0: I hasten to say it's a stationary cruise ship. I would not set foot on a cruise ship myself. Because they're not. It my,
1: doesn't tempt me. Doesn't,
0: no, it's not really my idea of paradise and I'm horrendously motion sick anyway. There was also the remote participation, which is a new, new thing. We've got these sort of screens up in the chambers now where people are dialling in from their electorate offices or other parts of the country in order to participate. I did report at The Guardian some of the correspondence between Christian Porter, the manager of the house, and, and Tony Burke, the manager of opposition business, that had a lot of, I would call, droll Porterisms about the risks associated inherently in technology failing, you know, sort of buffering, et cetera, et cetera. How's it gone this week? We
1: had one little hassle on Tuesday. I might say the Senate and the House have adopted slightly different procedures. As always, there's some quirks to the Senate. And senators are also much more familiar with it because while we've had video conferencing facilities available to both House and Senate committees for a while, most people have preferred face-to-face. Yeah. But like most people have experienced in their own lives, you know, there's been a drastic change since March. And so we put in place extra systems. And all those Senate committees. There have been well over 100 Senate committee hearings conducted via video conference. Mm. And as you would know, Catherine, senators spend a lot more time on parliamentary committees than do members of the House, who, who primarily serve their constituency. So the senators, by that, by virtue of that, were much more familiar with the operation of the system. Mm. So we had one technological hassle on Tuesday, unfortunately, during Richard Dinatali's oh, valedictory that's speech. Right. Yes, that's but right. But it was fixed within three minutes, and. Given the scale of the system we're operating and the geographic diversity and the need for pretty intense security, I might say, for obvious reasons, Mm. I've actually been pretty happy and most people have been pretty happy and parliamentary services here who don't always get plaudits for their work. On this occasion, they really, really deserve them. They've put a lot of effort into testing it and training people. So at least in the Senate side, I would say it's been highly functional.
0: And this was sort of outside the the genre of droll porterisms, but he did... Flag in his correspondence to Tony Burke, notwithstanding it's the other place, and we need to talk about the red chamber and the quirks, which we'll get to in a tick. But he he flagged at one point there might be a problem with privilege, which seemed a little bit of a stretch given Senate committees have been basically doing remote teleconferencing for Yonks. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm obviously getting you to venture near offering perhaps a counter opinion to the Attorney General, which may be fraught. But anyway, it seems that argument sort of surfaced and then it seemed to disappear pretty quickly. But And I presume that's because there really is no problem with privilege.
1: Um, look, to be honest, I can't speak to the House and their standing orders. Each House really governs its own procedures. With respect to the Senate, we were confident there's no privilege issue, but we may have different rules. I I think this is one of those issues where there's a lot more familiarity with some of these processes on the Senate side. And our rules are different for r- remote participation, as we call it, than in mm-hmm. the House. So, I, yeah, I can't make yes, any obligation no, no, the no, no, I, I, I shouldn't have
0: invited you to reflect on your colleague anyway. So quirks of the red chamber. Let's go there. We can get into this any way you like. But you you actually made some very interesting remarks early in the week from your chair Mm. as the president, concerning rights of chambers and participation versus what executives may or may not want to do, that got a bit lost in the wash of the week because there was just quite a lot of things Mm. happening. But you made some quite sharp points. Let's Let's tell the listeners what you said and unpack it a bit because this sort of brings us back to the, you know, the sort of the customs and and procedures in the Mm. Senate. The Senate is the master of its own destiny.
1: It it is. And I I suppose the... It starts from the point that as a general rule, although we've had some close elections in recent years, as a general rule, the government has a majority in the House of Representatives and it sets the standing orders. The government chooses the Speaker. In the Senate, the government rarely, it's had a majority for three years out of the last, uh, two, two years out actually, out of the last 30. It's uncommon. It effectively chooses the President with the acquiescence of the opposition because the government doesn't have a majority. And so that leads to different customs and practices in different places, and One of the observations I made on Monday, and and this is something I have made before because we've cancelled a few parliamentary sittings Mm -hmm. this year, Mm -hmm. is that while the government can determine the sittings of the House of Representatives, the Senate itself determines its own sittings. It customarily adopts the sitting pattern adopted by the government, but for example, if something happened this weekend and Parliament could not sit next week, the government can suspend the sitting of the House of Representatives, mm. but only the government and the opposition jointly can suspend the sitting in the Senate.
0: Yeah, see, I, I just think it's worth pointing yeah. this out because a lot of people listening will have no idea. No, that that's, um, look, I so. have to
1: admit, there, there, there are two things that I think are guaranteed cures for insomnia. One <laughs> is... um intergovernmental, you know, federal financial relations. The other one is parliamentary procedure. Come, um, but, come on. Uh, maybe not for you and me. No, no. Well, for,
0: look, parliamentary procedure is better than the vertical fiscal imbalance, <laughs> like, let's be honest. And no, and these are important. It's, it's important that people understand these things because institutions and their process and their practices are actually really important. So that's why, you know, among... Yep. I think it's important we have this conversation. Right. So the the bottom line is Scott Morrison cannot wake up tomorrow and determined that the senate won't sit. The For only what?
1: option the government can do is actually prorogue parliament. And and that's an option that's constitutional. Well uh, and we we actually saw Malcolm do it and Malcolm Turnbull do it. And and that, and that's usually done every year in places like Canada and the UK and they have a speech from the throne to commence a parliamentary year. Mm-hmm. It's just not a custom in Australia. Yeah. And it was only done in 2016 to enable the consideration of the bills for a double dissolution election, so that's always a power that the prime minister can recommend the governor general. But as a general rule, the sittings of the houses are determined by the senate in the senate, but the government can effectively determine them in the house. In the house, yeah.
0: So, and the point you were making is, which I, which I, I don't know, it sort of, it really resonated with me that there's, there is a, there is a right of parliamentarians to come to their representative place, come to the senate, come to the house participate in public life, that's that's a right. It, and, it, and, it, and the right sort of sits with the representative rather than the executive, which again is not something that people will automatically know about. So tell, tell people a so, bit about that.
1: I made a statement. It was a rather lengthy one, um, but you know we're living through extraordinary times, um, none more so than those of us from Melbourne. And um, we are I made the observation that we we have granted quite extraordinary powers to officials. And I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, and I specifically thanked all the health officials that I've had to work with, both for travel purposes and for parliamentary purposes. So this is not a a judgment, it's an observation of fact. But the, the challenge is that some of the impositions being imposed, particularly at state and territory levels, are impeding the ability of parliamentarians to undertake their parliamentary business, mm. and particularly in some cases to directly attend parliamentary proceedings. Now, this has happened um, earlier in the year in South Australia. Um
0: Oh, what happened then?
1: Uh, There was an order in South Australia that was effectively the same as the one put in place in Queensland now, that senators and members had to quarantine at home for two weeks after they returned to Canberra, which could theoretically have prevented them traveling on parliamentary business to, for example, come back to Canberra, or to go to a Commonwealth office, for example, to have a briefing on an issue of legislation that was coming before parliament the following week, which, as you can imagine, is important for ministers and shadow ministers. Yes, of course. And so, again, it's it's not a malevolent motivation at all, but there is an impact there. And also, to use a Victorian example, again, I'll make the observation that last week there was an observation by our Chief Health Health Officer in Victoria advising people not to attend state parliament. Mm -hmm. Uh, That troubled me, not that I'm a Victorian parliamentarian, but the principle here is that when we're granting quite extraordinary powers, I think it's actually more important that parliament has the right and indeed, in my view, the obligation to scrutinise their exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it doesn't matter who's in government or opposition. My role as president of the Senate is to be a a custodian of the institution. Mm -hmm. And so I made the observation that this is something that we may have to look at if it continues. No one begrudges what I'll call the emergency phase. Mm. People were genuinely scared in March and April, and I can tell you they still are a bit in Melbourne, when there was a real risk of community transmission earlier. And course, in, in Melbourne there is at the moment. Yeah. But I made the point that we've got to be careful not to let a new status quo be established inadvertently. Yes, And I think one of the points I made was principles, if they're only defended when it's easy, then they're mere customs mm. and, and practices, they're not principles. So I didn't say we had to deal with it now, but I do think we're going to have to have a budget next year. We are going to have to live in a what is called a COVID normal world for a while until hopefully a vaccine arrives. And part of that is parliament. So it wasn't a judgment on anyone, but it was an observation that there are inadvertent consequences of some of the controls being imposed, even if you support them or oppose them.
0: And the point is too, that it's sort of core in the system of representative democracy is that we do elect parliamentarians to represent our interests in our parliaments. And, And that is a very important check in a democracy that our, our people show up. If we don't like what they do, we vote them out. Uh, that's important. And being able to go about your business, obviously, in a manner that's safe with public mm. health imperatives, I don't, I, mm. neither one of us is going to argue we should just sort of pony up and do whatever we feel like, but that's not the point. Mm. The point is we these are really unprecedented times in all kinds of ways and the the things that protect us in unprecedented times are actually institutions and systems. And we need to be very careful about making sure that w- we allow systems to do what they're supposed to do.
1: And, you know, times of crisis, we do tend to defer to executive control. Yeah. And that's entirely legitimate. But it also needs to not be a new normal unless there's a conscious decision to make it a new normal. And so I described as constitutionally problematic unilateral impositions of state or territory officials that restricted Commonwealth parliamentarians' ability to attend parliamentary proceedings. And that matters because this is where they're asking questions about how the actual problem is being handled, how the pandemic is being handled. Correct. Um, The circular argument that we have to not have people travel, including parliamentarians because of the... Um, de- degree of control we need. <laughs> yes. Again, I don't think it's intentional, but just like I'm not an expert in health, I, I, and I don't seek to be, and I don't seek to counteract those experts' advice in any way. Similarly, I'm a bit of an expert in this, and yes. there are there is the risk, in my view, of unintended consequence unless we address it over the next few months.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so given that we've sort of we've landed on new normals in the sort of parliamentary sphere. I'm interested in just catching up with you about Victoria and and what's going on in your home state. We have been polling the, the Guardian Essential poll throughout this pandemic, mostly weekly. We're now back to fortnightly. That gives us a, a trove of really, in my view, really interesting data about uh, how the Australian community has, has gone through at a psychological and practical level, this really shattering, hmm. dislocating experience, right? Over the last couple of weeks, we have done some polling in both in Victoria and nationally, just about the restrictions that are applying. In uh, in Melbourne now, from my mates in Melbourne, I, I had a Zoom with a couple of a couple good friends of mine over the weekend. I mean, I'd, I, all I hear from my mates in Melbourne is are people people climbing the walls. Mm. You know, people are it's really starting to get yeah, to them. It is, and obviously you know people understand why it needs to happen, but people are nonetheless climbing the walls. So Q my surprise to see our polling results indicate that support for the lockdown measures in Victoria is north of 70% in the community, some measures even higher. And I mean, we can separate the necessity of what we're doing from how you might feel about it in a tick, I'm sure. But so there's that, right? 70% plus community support for what's happening. Also then, we did a bunch of questions this week which are highly suggestive to me that people would even go further. People would close the borders entirely. People, it was sort of, again, north of 60% thought it was okay if police or someone required them to wear a, a monitoring surveillance bracelet to make sure that people didn't leave their homes. I just sort of, I'm kind of semi-astonished by this. I mean, as and I say this as a supporter of you know, obviously, mm. we need to flatten the curve. We've done it successfully in the past. Looks like we're doing it again. Saving lives is important. That's that's the point of view I come from. But I am astonished by that level of equanimity in the community about what's going on and slightly concerned that we are normalising a set of arrangements or we've, we're adjusting in our minds to something being appropriate that is kind of like something that would not be tolerated in any other circumstances.
1: Well, there's a lot there. I oh, know. Sorry, um, sorry. Look, I, you're, up for, I, I, you're up for it. Yeah, yeah. I'll stay. I'll start by saying I just want, <laughs> in my role, I avoid partisanship. So these are sort of observations without being party political. To start with, there is public support. I, I think, in all honesty, and this is just guessing, and we'll all know in a month's time. I think part of that is hope they work. Yeah. Because what is the alternative? Mm. When it comes to things like the bracelets, I actually saw that through a uniquely Victorian prism, which is that you've got to remember, until a few weeks ago in Melbourne, home isolation meant you could leave the house. Yeah. So I think that could partly be to enforce the isolation that a lot of people associate with, well, this is how it got out. Yes. So I think that's what I'll call a more practical measure. Then we get to what I'll call the arrangements that are in place. The degree of public support for something to me is not a justification for it, it's an observation. You know, we have the... Trial of that horrific man in Christchurch today, yeah. and if we did a sample on, you know, what people might thought of the punishment he could get, it that doesn't it justify the punishment that the poll might come out with. Yes. The other thing I'd say is that these measures don't need sixty five percent support; they need ninety five percent support. And I think there has been an underestimation of how the first wave was controlled by voluntary action rather than rules, mm. that people were scared, and that people complied. And when you see the movement data, and there's been a lot of debate over the impact of the Black Lives Matter protest in Melbourne, and a yeah. lot of people said, well, the movement data started to spike a- before then and about then anyway. I, the way I view that is, putting the argument about that to one side, that's when the spontaneous self-isolation stopped. Mm. And if you get 25 or 30% of people think, thinking these rules aren't, don't have legitimacy and don't obey them, then the rules aren't going to be effective. And so I think, in all honesty, there has been an over-reliance on rules rather than persuasion in Victoria. And you are seeing certain groups in the community because there are particular age groups, for example, who keep getting caught yeah. breaking rules, who, in my view, are sort of spontaneously saying, well, they're not going to abide by them. Mm. You know, For example, there's not been what I would call a focus on persuasion, why are these rules necessary? There's been a, an enforcement and an authority based approach. Mm. We've had a lot more fines in other states even in the first wave. And just on the curfew for example, I've got friends, they're homeschooling three kids, two of them are trying to work. The curfew stops one of them going for a walk after the kids go to bed at night. And that used to be the way one of them would get out of the house. Yeah. There's no rationale in my mind for a curfew. It hasn't if there is it hasn't been explained. Mm. And so with all, you know, with respect for all the hard work that's being done, I I think that there's a lack of focus on the need to explain the rationale for things amongst some elements of the public health groups doing this. Mm -hmm. And there's been lots of issues with medical people and others asking for data to be able to quiz it in Melbourne and to say, well, show us where it's coming. Give it to us by postcode. And so, again, Mm -hmm. I don't think... I'm not going to assign a motive to it. You know that I try and avoid assigning Mm -hmm. motive, but judge. But I think that in Victoria, there is an over-reliance on a slightly authoritarian approach, and less of a reliance upon a persuasion approach and an insufficient willingness to explain why or consequences. Now, that might be changing. I don't know. I've obviously been in Canberra in quarantine for two weeks and um, I'll be here for a while. (laughs) But I I, I really do worry that that lack of explanation is leading to a declining level of community support. And I say this with someone very close to me in in an aged care facility that's been hit by this. So I You know, I I don't want this to um, get out of hand, but the other thing I'll say is I am very worried that, I don't like saying this, but let's say you put the economic costs to one side. I don't think you can, but I know some people in the health area say, well, no, no, we've got to deal with the health issue first. I'm genuinely worried, and there are people much more expert than me who have written about it, that we're underestimating the health costs of these impositions. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, delayed breast screenings, um, yes, incre- right. delayed colonoscopies. Yep. As someone said to me, it doesn't take much to convince a 55-year-old bloke not to get his heart checked. Yep. Um, people I know who have had surgery delayed will probably never have it. And so that, again, is not to say that we don't take measures, but I do think everything in life is a trade-off. And this is not a, a, a cost-free exercise, what we're doing, even in a pure health sense. Mm. And a lot of people in Melbourne are increasingly starting to wonder whether those health costs on kids, on parents, I might say particularly on mothers of young children who I think are bearing a a unique burden, I think there needs to be more discussion of that to generate consent for what are quite extraordinary measures. Even if you're supporter of them 100% and I'm not saying I oppose them. I don't think anyone can deny that if I was in this pod cave a year ago and said that in Melbourne you couldn't go more than five k's from your house, only one person could go shopping, I had to carry papers to go to work and I could only leave the house to go for exercise an hour a day and I was locked up for 23 hours. No one would have believed me. So they are extraordinary to go to your point of it can't be normalisation by acquiescence. Um, There always should be a choice.
0: Yeah, no, no, I, I find very little to disagree with there. I'm intrigued though, what do you think, you say that there was this sort of a resort to authoritarianism in terms of the state's approach. Well, authority-based, I think. No, no oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. want oh, to use sort of such a quite that? a Oh, God, yeah, sorry. I've, yeah. I've, my brain's mushed. I just meant an authority-based, cops-based or yep. law enforcement-based approach. It's not just that someone rolls out of bed in the morning if you're a premier, take the personalities out of it and the partisanship out of it. And obviously haven't injected it, but Doing my best. Yeah. Yeah. You don't just roll out of bed one day. And just think, I'm just going to bring the hammer down massively, unless you are some sort of closet dictator, which is sort of absurd, oh, right? I don't know. The, but I think
1: there, there's a couple of things that work there. Firstly, I genuinely think the public health mindset can be attached to authority based, and I go to things like sugar taxes and, and banning things, you know, minimum prices for alcohol. I mean, you'd expect me to say this. I'm yes. a, a, someone that doesn't like controls on people. You know, junk food taxes. I mean, they are all what I would call authority-based approaches, Mm -hmm. state-based approaches where you make rules and you force people to comply. Now, some of them are cost-free and and universally good, like Victoria's world-first seatbelt laws, uh, strict rules on drink driving. You know, um, Victoria's got the strictest speeding laws in the country where you get pinged, I think, for four kilometers over the limit, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, is that going too far? Um, Victoria's always had a very strong public health movement, and sometimes I think it can resort to authority a little bit too much but, is, but you'd expect me to say that but
0: but is that what is is that what you think's driving it rather than um I, a sort of i don't know more more broadly based political anxiety or um,
1: look i think the other thing is that i mean if i were all out of bed i look for excuses for things to be solved without the government doing things and there's a legitimate, but different political perspective, sure, that, you know, yeah. which is the one that supports collective action through, expressed through democratically elected no, governments. Sure, sure. So again, trying to step back from my own view, I think that partly explains it. Uh, I, I think that I might have a slightly different worldview, but then again, I'll also confess I'm not in possession of all the data, which is why I haven't made public observations mm-hmm. on this. But I do think that we've never had this particular area of policy with this responsibility- you know, global national pandemic with this degree of authority, you know, with public health orders of the like. And so- To take a a reasonable view and step back, I'm not assigning any motive again, is that that, that maybe it's just not used to having to explain itself publicly in in a way that the Secretary of the Treasury does at estimates committees. You know, this is not an area that is traditionally been hotly contested. And maybe that explains it.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thought, that there's never been much contestability about the whole process. Anyway, I just think it's fascinating because it's, you know, some people in the states, other states say... Andrews came down more heavily because there were weaknesses in the public health system in Victoria that stem back to the Kennett days, right, through privatisation. Can I say, I've got to tell you,
1: um, I mean, I sat here, I thought that was one of the more extraordinary things I've heard. I mean, Geoffrey lost office 21 years ago, next month.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, but. Um, but, And
1: I might say I was up here, you know, when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister doing um, health inquiries at the time, and it was the Victorian health system that, yeah, John Brumby and and Steve had poured more money into, but it basically kept the of architecture of the health networks no, that it, was...
0: That's the point, yeah. that it's sort of like once, uh, if, if things are rolled back, then sometimes they don't roll back in, I guess. Again, I'm not saying this is signing, but I'm just fascinated by... Yeah, one of the most interesting things about this story has been the sort of the the, the human psychology around it, both in the community, among political players and protagonists, the, the sort of commonalities in response and the differences in response. I don't know. I just think it's fascinating. Well,
1: and I'm very careful to, partly because of my role, but also, you know, I'm not in possession of all the information and therefore I can't necessarily second guess anything a minister does, but I can question it. And I might say that I think we're getting to the stage past that initial fear of, and the initial crisis phase where we are going to move into a phase of questioning mm. where more of these decisions will be about sometimes very difficult trade-offs. There is no good option at the moment. We know we're imposing health costs we have a good idea of what the alternative is because it's sadly a, a daily statistic yeah. in Victoria. Yeah. So, But I think we are going into that questioning phase and to circle back around, that is one of the reasons I, I made the observation on Monday, yes. the inadvertent consequences of state and territory controls.
0: No, quite exactly. And, and very elegantly summarised. This is uh, We've squared our own circle. Scott Ryan, thank you so much for your time, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the executive producer of this show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. Stay well, stay safe. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me again.